Hey, everybody, you're listening to CNA Newsroom, the podcast that brings you the people behind the headlines. I'm your host and CNA's editor-in-chief, J.D. Flynn. On last week's show, a few black Catholics talked with us about their reactions to the death of George Floyd and their own experiences of racism and race in America. If you haven't listened to that episode, be sure to queue it up after this one. You don't want to miss it. This week, though, we wanted to share the stories of two black Catholics who might one day be named saints. Obviously, there are more than two black Catholics on the path to sainthood, but we chose these two because of the differences in their stories. Father Augustus Tolton was born into slavery in 1854, but he escaped at the start of the Civil War. He became the first well-known African-American Catholic priest in the United States, but not without a lot of hardship. Before we get to Father Tolton, we're going to start with someone a little bit more contemporary, Sister Thea Bowman. Sister Thea was born in the 1930s and she died in the 90s, just 30 years ago. Sister Thea herself experienced racism even within the church and was a voice for racial reconciliation and unity. Our producer, Kate Oliveira, has that story. I often say that one of the most interesting things about me is that I was a friend of Sister Thea Bowman. I was in orbit of her life for 35 years. Sister Charlene Smith is a member of the Franciscan Sisters of Perpetual Adoration, or FSPA. They're based in La Crosse, Wisconsin. Charlene met Sister Thea Bowman in the 1950s, when they both entered the Franciscan convent. Well, we both wanted to be Franciscans, and we both wanted to be teachers, and we both wanted to major in English. So that meant that we were in a lot of college classes together, and that's how we got to know each other very well and become friends. She was an outstanding teacher. She was an outstanding speaker, and she had a voice like an opera star, and she could sing really beautifully, and people loved being with her. I often say she was a whole lot like Jesus. People loved to be around her, and I was one of those people that was lucky enough to be around her. She was wonderful, really wonderful. Thea Bowman was born Bertha Bowman in 1937 in Yazoo City, Mississippi. She was the granddaughter of slaves and the only child born to her parents. Bertha was raised Protestant, and she was incredibly spiritual from a young age. She attended services at many of the Christian churches in her hometown, including the Catholic parish. It was there that she first came into contact with the Franciscan Sisters of Perpetual Adoration. Bertha was so impressed with the kindness and the generosity of the Franciscans that she decided to convert to Catholicism at the age of nine. Her parents enrolled her in the local Catholic school, which was run by the Franciscans. At the age of 15, Bertha announced plans to leave home and join the Franciscans at their mother house in Wisconsin. Her parents begged her to stay. Maybe she could join a traditionally black order of sisters closer to home. But Bertha insisted on the Franciscans. She actually staged a hunger strike until her parents relented and she moved to Wisconsin. At the time, she was the first and only African-American sister in the community. And though the Franciscans showed her nothing but kindness back home in Mississippi, 
she did experience some racism at the convent in Wisconsin. I never saw any example of racism extended to Sister Theo when she was in our community, but there are sisters from other communities, African-American sisters, to whom Thea apparently mentioned that once in a while some of our older sisters, you know, who had never been around anybody who was African-American were not always positive about Sister Thea. A few years into her formation, Bertha took the religious name of Mary Thea, a name she would keep for the rest of her life. With the Franciscans, Thea pursued a career in education. One of her first assignments was to teach at a Catholic elementary school in La Crosse. Thea included lessons about race and diversity in her classroom, even in those early days. She taught children to use their hand, and the five fingers were the five different colors of skin, you know, black and brown and yellow and red and white. And she knew that we were all not a melting pot. She was never very interested in that particular metaphor. She was a whole lot more interested in saying that we are a, more like a salad. So when you're a salad, you know, you, you don't lose your characteristics. So you remain individuals. And the whole point is to, is to love one another. A few years later, Thea moved to Washington to study at the Catholic University of America. While she was there, the civil rights movement was in full swing in her home state of Mississippi. Charlene said Thea watched the marches from Washington. She wasn't able to take part in those, but she, she watched everything. She was a, a devotee of Martin Luther King. She thought Martin Luther King was, was really wonderful, and she was extremely sad when he was assassinated. Still, Thea did what she could to advocate for racial justice and equality while she studied in Washington. She helped to found the National Black Sisters Conference, and she relentlessly advocated for increased representation in church leadership. It was during this time that Thea developed what would become one of her signature phrases, Black is beautiful, a phrase she borrowed from her mother. After earning her doctorate in English language and literature, Thea returned to Wisconsin to teach English at a university run by the Franciscans in La Crosse. In 1978, after teaching for nearly two decades, Thea returned home to Mississippi to care for her aging parents. She took on a new role at the Diocese of Jackson as director of the Office of Intercultural Awareness. The Bishop of Jackson wanted Thea to share Black spirituality with all Catholic churches in the diocese. And she did that, and she went to all the Catholic churches, and she, she taught about black spirituality, which is holistic. She taught, and she sang, and she became very, very popular. Thea became really well-known throughout the South. Soon, she was fielding invitations to teach or speak in other states. New York, and Philadelphia, and Washington, D.C., and Chicago, and Los Angeles, and San Francisco, all over the place. At the time, Charlene was working in Washington, and she remembers people pulling her aside at Catholic churches in the area because they recognized the medal she wore around her neck, the medal of the Franciscan Sisters of Perpetual Adoration. They would say, oh, you're a member of Sister Thea's community. <laughs> people referred to us as Thea's community. And I said, oh yeah, of course, I know Thea. <laughs> She's my friend. In 1984, both of Thea's parents died. 
That same year, Thea was also diagnosed with breast cancer. But Thea continued traveling and speaking and teaching. She landed an interview on 60 Minutes. And in 1989, Thea was invited to speak at the spring meeting of the U.S. Bishops' Conference. Thea was the first African-American in history to address the U.S. bishops. She became extremely famous from that speech. What does it mean to be black and Catholic? Catholic, it means that I come to my church fully functioning. That doesn't frighten you, does it? I come to my church fully functioning. I bring myself, my black self, all that I am, all that I have, all that I hope to become. I bring my whole history, my traditions, my experience, my culture, my African-American song and dance and gesture and movement and teaching and preaching and healing and responsibility. When she was giving that particular speech, she was in terrible pain. And I don't know if you've ever looked at the video, but it's all on YouTube. Thea is all over the internet, as you probably know. And um, you notice that she's gesturing with her left hand, which is, she she was a, a wonderful uh, presenter, and she could gesture beautifully, but her right arm at that time was so painful that she could hardly even hold it up anymore. And at the end of that speech, she had the bishops stand and, and link their arms and sing, We Shall Overcome. We love one another. We shall overcome. Y'all get up. We shall She doesn't wince in pain, but those of us who know her very well know that that was extremely difficult. would die from cancer a year later, in 1990. She was 52 years old. 
Today, Sister Thea Bowman's legacy lives on. There's an education foundation named after her that helps African Americans study at Catholic colleges. There are several schools named in her honor, and you can find murals, stained glass depictions, and even statues of her across the United States. She's just all over the place. Her, her influence was so great, and people, people who knew her loved her. In 2018, the Diocese of Jackson officially opened Thea's cause for sainthood. It has been 30 years since Sister Thea Bowman's death, and the United States continues to grapple with racism. I'm sure she's watching what's going on in the United States, and I think she's cheering for the African Americans and, and all the people who have been um, subjected to, to pain and injustice. Um, she was very much concerned that people be treated fairly, be treated as children of God. For CNA Newsroom, I'm Kate Oliveira. This is Michelle LaRosa, Deputy Editor-in-Chief at CNA. I was raised Catholic. I went to Catholic school my whole life. I work for Catholic News Agency. But I have certainly not exhausted the richness of the Catholic faith. I like CNA Newsroom because it allows me to continue learning new things about the Catholic world, from inspiring stories of modern-day saints to a look at where the Palm Sunday palms come from, to the ethical considerations surrounding vegetarianism. There's always something new to learn, something interesting to reflect on and discuss. If you're interested in learning more about the Catholic world from all kinds of different perspectives, CNA Newsroom is the podcast for you. Subscribe to CNA Newsroom on your favorite podcast app so you'll never miss an episode. Each episode will be delivered straight to your phone. You can find us anywhere you get your podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, and many more. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review. And don't forget to tell your friends about us. Now, back to the episode. In 1889, Father Augustus Tolton gave a speech at the first meeting of the National Black Catholic Congress, held in Washington, D.C. And there he, he said something I thought was, well, I think, the most powerful quote by him. This is Deacon Harold Burke Sivers. He's a Catholic speaker, author, and radio host. He says that the church deplores... Uh, now, remember, this is the this time where you know slavery um, was, had just ended and stuff, but still, um, tremendous racism. The Catholic Church deplores a double slavery, that of the mind and the body. She endeavors to free us both. 
I was a poor slave boy, but the priests of the church did not disdain me. It was through the influence of one of them that I became what I am. It was the priests of the church who taught me to pray and to forgive my persecutors. It was through the direction of the school sisters of Notre Dame that I beheld for the first time the glimmering light of truth and the majesty of the church. The church, which knows and makes no distinction in race or color, calls us all. When the church does all of this, is she not a true liberator of the race? In this church, we do not have to fight for our rights because we are black. The church is broad and generous. She is the church for our people. <laughs> I'm like, yes, yes, that's it right there. Although black Catholics had been part of the Catholic community in the United States for over three centuries at that point, Father Tolton was the very first black Catholic priest in the whole United States. So if people can, can really get that dialed in, then we're, we'll be very much on our way to, uh, uh, to, uh, to building a, a world of, of true justice and peace. Today, Father Tolton is on his way to sainthood, which would make him the United States' first black saint. Throughout his life, he endured extreme racism, even from fellow Catholics, but never gave up on his faith. He was such a wonderful example of not responding with anger and animosity, but with, uh, you know, let's let's uh, work together to build up our families and and show these folks, you know, um, that that we're not the animals that they think that we are. A quick note about Father Tolton's name. If you've heard of him before, you've probably heard him referred to as Augustus. But actually, he was baptized Augustine. And over the years, it seems he was variously referred to as Augustus, Augustine, August, and even as Father Gus. So, for clarity, let's stick with Gus. Gus was born into slavery, not far from Hannibal, Missouri, in 1854. You may remember that town as Mark Twain's inspiration for Tom Sawyer and Huckleberry Finn. His mother, Martha Jane Chisley, had previously lived on a plantation in Kentucky, owned by the Manning family, who were Catholics, and thus had all their slaves baptized and taught the faith. It was a time where the, the Catholic slave owners, all, all Christian slave owners, but including Catholic slave owners, um, used the Bible as a tool um, against the slaves. When the Mannings moved to Missouri in 1849, they bought some land from another Catholic family, who enslaved a bright young man named Peter Paul Tolton, who had also been baptized and given basic religious instruction. Martha Jane and Peter Paul met and decided to get married, but it would be until 1859 when their masters finally gave them permission. In that time, they had their three children, of which Gus was the second. At that time, the tension over slavery that would soon lead to the Civil War was starting to bubble over. Some Missouri slaves were already escaping across the river to Illinois. When the Civil War did break out in 1861, Gus's father ran away from the plantation to join the Union Army, hoping to help with the effort to free his people, but he died of dysentery soon after. Now left to raise the family alone amid backbreaking labor, Martha Jane fiercely defended her children, and soon decided it was time to escape. 
Somehow, and no one knows exactly how she managed it, Martha Jane fled with her three children, traversing the 40 miles on foot from their plantation to Quincy, enduring occasional near misses with Confederate soldiers, and crossing the mighty Mississippi in a dilapidated rowboat halfway through. But they made it. Although Illinois had outlawed slavery in 1848, it was by no means a safe haven for escapees. This is true not only of the state as a whole, but also in the Catholic churches the Tolton family attended. You know, they were Catholics. Uh, they were baptized Catholics by the slave owners and, and wanted to go to church in Quincy and couldn't find a place because uh, the, the, the priests and the nuns welcomed them, but the, but the parishioners didn't. The white parishioners in Illinois rejected their black fellow Catholics. They finally got to the Irish parish where they were welcomed. Um, the priest didn't care what the people said. He, he welcomed them anyway. And, uh, but they came up with tremendous discrimination from the people within the church, uh, from the school systems, from in the parishes, of course. Unfortunately, this was happening in Catholic churches all over the United States. Even in cities like Washington, D.C., where large communities of black Catholics had lived for literally centuries, they were treated like second-class citizens in most of the churches. Back then, you know, black Catholics weren't even allowed to, you know, they either had to sit in the back of the church or sit up in the choir loft, something like that, away from everyone. And he saw, the, the obviously, the discrimination that was happening at that time and was, um, was tremendously affected by it personally, but still felt that he might have a vocation to the priesthood. The priest at Tolton's parish approached the very bright young Gus and asked him if he had ever considered the priesthood. He said, I can become a priest? Because he never saw a black priest before. He goes, sure you can. But there was a problem. Not one seminary in the United States to which Gus applied would accept him because of his race. He was rejected by everyone because he was black. So he left the U.S. to study for the priesthood in Rome. In 1880, he departed for the Eternal City after being accepted to the seminary there a few years earlier. At the time, the Vatican Seminary was set up to receive men from countries that did not yet have seminaries of their own. He had an amazing experience in Rome. First time he never experienced any, any um, discrimination or prejudice at all. He was ordained a priest. And then he thought, okay, well, they're gonna send me to a country that doesn't have priests, that I could be a missionary priest. Father Gus fully expected to be sent to minister in a different country, maybe even to Africa. But instead, the Vatican sent him back to the U.S., to the country that, up to that point, had rejected him, to the very city he thought he was leaving behind for good. Well, they decided to send him back to the United States, back to Quincy, Illinois, back to the town where he experienced so much uh, uh, racism and discrimination. Deacon Harold says the reason for this was simple. The Vatican wanted people in the U.S. to see a black priest. He would be the very first one in the entire country. Unfortunately, being a black priest by no means made him immune to discrimination. In fact, things got so bad at his parish in Quincy that he was forced to leave, to head to Chicago, where there were already a lot of black Catholics in need of a pastor. And he was welcomed there by Archbishop Fian, and he started to establish um, him, himself there and, and, and even started to build a church. Sadly, he died in 1897 of uh, uremia, which is a complication from heat stroke. You know, basically, he, the hot Chicago summers, he just worked himself to death, basically, you know. Um, so worried about taking care of the, uh, of the flock that he didn't really take care of himself. Father Gus was only 43 when he died, but he had already made quite a name for himself. 
a seminary set up in Baltimore by the Josephite religious order, whose charism is to minister to black Catholics, opened not long after his death. Deacon Harold says many young black Catholics saw the ministry of Father Tolton and were inspired to enter the seminary themselves. He was such an inspiration for other black Catholics who instead of abandoning the Catholic Church said, no, we're gonna stay. If he, if he can become a priest, then there's hope for us. So he was someone that, like a magnet that people could gather around. They were, you know, they were attracted to him and attracted to the truth of the faith. The Chicago Archdiocese opened his sainthood cause in 2010. They went back to Quincy, dug up his body. Uh, forensic pathologists and, and um, anthropologists were there, double checking to make sure it was him. and you know, all that kind of stuff, and took relics and all that, and, and, and went back to the Vatican. Everything's been approved. Last February, a Vatican commission voted to move Father Gus's sainthood cause forward, meaning he now enjoys the title of Venerable. He'll be declared blessed once the Vatican confirms that at least one miracle has been granted by God through his intercession. For canonization, typically a second miracle is required. So what can Father Gus's experience as the first black Catholic priest in the U.S. tell us about where we are today? Obviously, he was raised in an environment where it was a common belief that white people were superior to blacks. You got to remember, it was a time, think about it, on his, on his birth certificate, it says Augustus John Tolton, property of Stephen Elliott. So on his birth certificate, it says it was property. He and his family endured a lifetime of hatred and oppression both within and outside the church. And, and at the time, he was very, very frustrated by this. You know, as a small boy, he learned um, from his association with people in the white race to accept the fact that degradation and contempt were common, not just a common lot. But he also saw um, from, from his study of the scriptures and study of philosophy that, wait a minute, there's a contradiction here. You know, they're living like this, but the Word of God says this. They're, they're treating us like this, but Jesus is supposed to treat people with it. So he saw the contradiction of what's going on here. And though he was upset, obviously, with the circumstance of his time, his heart was never filled with anger or um, animosity or vitriol. Instead, he responded with love and patience and understanding. Obviously, he deplored the lack of, you know, opportunities and spiritual guidance that were open to to blacks, so he did it himself. You know, he started to educate, um, young, even before he was a priest, started to help educate people of color, both uh, adults and children. He started a little catechetical kind of school with the help of the sisters and with the help of the priests as well. Although the racism that Father Guest experienced was extreme, Deacon Harold says he always responded in love. He would try to sit down and talk with his detractors, reason with them, and encourage them to reconsider the ways they were treating others. And always want to have dialogue, always want to talk about, well, wait a minute, because he, he, he saw the contradiction, he wanted to talk about it. Well, why is it that it says, you know, this, but yet we're living like this? And, you know, it was frustrating for him. Think about it, why did he stay? You know, I mean, think about it, if, if someone was treated like that today in, in a church, they'd leave and go to another church. They'd either, either leave that particular church and go to a parish or go to someplace else, or they leave the faith altogether. So why do I want to belong to a faith that is openly contradicting itself? You know, I'm just going to go someplace else. And, and you have to ask yourself, why didn't he do that? Because he understood he had to focus on the teachings of the church and not the people. 
that what the church taught was true, good, and beautiful, even though the people in the church <laughs> who were supposed to be exemplars and examples of the teaching of the church are all sinners in need of God's mercy. So even though they didn't live up to the standard of the gospel, um, that didn't deter him because he was focused on implementing the gospel, making the gospel come alive in the hearts of the faithful. Deacon Harold says positive role models are just as important for black people today as they were back then. He tried to raise up people um, so that they could be examples and show people, look, this is, this. we're not a stereotype. We're not, you know, um, a caricature. We are God's people, you know, and to, and to show people that face and to lead with that. Um, so I think that's a, a wonderful example of both how we can work within our own communities of faith as, as people of color, but also how we can introduce, so we can introduce people to this is the real face of who we are, you know, and to have them see us as brothers and sisters in Christ. These are the, the ways that the, we, we want to see be portrayed with strength and with beauty and with, and with hope. You know, and, and Father Dalton spent a, a lifetime working to shatter racial barriers, to facilitate dialogue in the hopes of opening and broadening mutual understanding. So it was hope in his prayer that um, eventually, um, you know, uh, we'd be able to, to worship together as one community. Um, and he hoped that his, his uh, seminary experience in Rome where he was treated with such a sense of equality and justice would, would eventually be part of the American story as well. And it is in a lot of ways, but obviously with, with everything going on today, you know, we're still struggling with that. Like many people of color, Deacon Harold has experienced his fair share of prejudice over the years. For example, um, you know, when, when, when people find out I went to Notre Dame for, under, for my undergraduate degree, they said, oh, you went to Notre Dame? And sometimes the first thing out of their mouth is, what position did you play? Because I'm a big black guy, right? So they think, oh, you must have played football. The, the first thing out of their mouth is, oh, what did you study? What? Why don't they ask me that? But it hasn't all ended badly by any means. There's a story he likes to tell about the first time he stepped on campus at the University of Notre Dame his freshman year. And I, w I lived in a triple. And so I was the first one to arrive in the room. The second guy that showed up was a guy named Ed. And he looked at me, he goes, which one are you? Because I was like, which roommate are you? And I said, I'm Harold. He goes, you're black. And I'm like, oh no, here we go. I'm like, this is gonna be a long year. You know? I was like, this guy, guy racist for a roommate. But as it turns out, he was just ignorant. I mean, he's never been around black people before. And so during that year, I mean, we really began to dialogue and we became friends. We roomed, in fact, we roomed together the next year as sophomores. And then we end up um, going to each other's weddings and stuff like that. And we've stayed in contact over the years, you know, so we really developed a friendship that was based on breaking down um, the doors of ignorance and, and seeing like, hey, wait a minute, you know, you're just you're just like every, we're, we're all people just like you know everyone else, you know. And I think that's the key is to um, to, to take opportunities to learn and to grow. So how can Catholics better embrace the diversity of the universal church? A simple thing, what about in a parish learning about black saints or Hispanic saints or Asian saints? You know, in our parish, our parish is half Vietnamese, and I've been thoroughly enjoying learning about Vietnamese saints. Another idea, he said, is sponsoring speakers of color to come and give talks at parishes. To learn about uh, what it's like to have endured racism and still 
be faithful to the church and and uh, and talk about our stories and our experiences. Uh, and I think that's a, a way. Of, uh, you know, that that personal one-on-one kind of interaction with people, I think, is a beautiful way uh, to begin to open doors. Above all, he said, "This is a time for prayer, both for an end to racism and for Father Tolton's sainthood cause." I would specifically ask for prayers before the Blessed Sacrament and Eucharistic Adoration before Jesus. Why? Because it's always better to be in the presence of the person that you love when you're praying. He relied heavily on prayer. Obviously, was a big factor. Um, learning about the faith and understanding that, um, again, focus on the teachings of the faith and not the people in the faith who are sinners. And that um, God's love and God's mercy will overcome any kinds of uh, hardships or calamities that we're experiencing within our faith. For CNA Newsroom, I'm Jonah McKeown. That's our show, everybody. CNA Newsroom is a production of Catholic News Agency, a service of EWTN News. I'm your host and CNA's editor-in-chief, J.D. Flynn. We're produced and edited by Kate Oliveira and Jonah McKeown. Our executive producer is Kate Oliveira. Special thanks this week to Deacon Harold Burke-Sievers and Sister Charlene Smith for talking with us. See you next week.